I mentioned this a few times at Christmas. Um, there's a Russell Moore story he tells about being in a bookstore, and he overhears two people, two dudes talking, and one of them says, I hate Christmas music because it has no tension. It's just all happy. <laughs> um, there's one particular Christmas song that is mostly depressing. I don't know if you know this. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote it way back in, um, I believe, 1863. Um, his Longfellow's wife had died in a fire um, in 1861. And then in 1863, his eldest son had joined the Union Army without his blessing and had just left to fight in the Civil War. So there he was. Um, his son had been almost killed. He'd lived uh, in the war, but he'd, he'd lived. And so um, this is a man who's down. <laughs> and he wrote a poem that has become a Christmas song, as is often the case. And our hymnals are full of songs that were once poems. Um, but he wrote a poem because on Christmas morning in 1863, while the Civil War is raging, while he's still grieving the loss of his wife and not knowing where his son is, he hears the church there in the town ringing its bells for Christmas. And it struck him that that was happening everywhere, that there were churches in towns not just all over the country, but there were churches in town all over the world ringing their bells for Christmas. And he thought of the angels singing to the shepherds, peace on earth and goodwill to men. And so he wrote that poem that became the Christmas song. I heard the bells in Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. Wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And he goes on and writes about the belfries of all Christendom, all rolled with this same unbroken song, a peace on earth could will to men. So this, this song is rolling out all over the world. And he says, and the world revolves from night to day, and, and this, this voice, this chime keeps on going, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then he says, in the midst of that, there are cannons thundering, this accursed sound and it drowns out the sound of peace on earth. He says, as if the, an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwilled men. In other words, we, we fight, we hate, um, and that is what's killing peace on earth. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks this song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So we, we gather, we, we light a candle about peace, we sing about the Prince of Peace, and we sing songs about peace, and, and Longfellow hears these church bells, and he goes, yeah, but look at the world. Look at the world. There's so much hatred, so much strife, so much war, so much fighting. It mocks peace on earth, goodwill to men. Um, not a happy Christmas song, because l later on, it's going to be 1872, so 20 years later, it's going to be put to music. Um, but there's that last verse, then pealed the bells more loud and deep, 
So the bells are ringing loudly. War and hatred are ringing, ringing even more loudly. And then the bells ring even more loudly. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So the end of the song ends with God will win, there will be peace. So there's tension there. That's one Christmas song that has some tension in it. That's some pretty sad stuff right there in the middle. Um, 1872, 20 years later, it gets, it gets music. 1956, Bing Crosby records it. And he doesn't sing all the verses. Can you blame him? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and I'm just, I'm curious. You think, um, you think back through your life, you think back through your parents' life, you think back through your grandparents' life, um, like peace on earth, like, has there ever been a time when there hasn't been a war going on somewhere, where there hasn't been fighting going on somewhere, right? I mean, I mean, let's just talk about peace where you work, <laughs> right? Have peace in your family, just internal peace inside yourself, right? And Christmas brings this message, peace on earth, goodwill to men. We celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace, and yet peace just seems so elusive, and yet the songs tell us we know where it's going, right? But today is a different day. It's International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We usually observe this in November, but not this year. We're a couple of weeks late. It's okay. The Persecuted Church does not mind um, that we prayed for them a couple of weeks late. Um, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Now, you want to talk about peace on earth. Imagine being a Christian in North Korea. Imagine being a Christian in China. Imagine being a Christian in Afghanistan. Imagine being a Christian in Mali, right, where unrest is happening and people are leaving. You're down to just a few missionaries sticking it out. Imagine being in Georgia where the Bakhtadzis are and Savior Bible Church where you're seeing people come to faith in Christ who may not be able to go back home as Christians, or people who fled their home countries as Christians who can't go back as Christians, right? You tell them, peace on earth, right? So we're praying today for those people who experience very directly and who experience most harshly the opposite of peace. And I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to move this morning from the broad idea of the persecuted church and persecution. And then I want us to move very specifically to a specific place and a specific person and even a specific object. <laughs> We're going to get that specific. Um, there's a couple of just warnings. I was, I've been thinking about this some this week. Um, like, be careful when we talk about the persecuted church. Um, like, it's easy to romanticize this, right? Oh, look at those suffering people, and they always pray for us. To pray that God will help us persevere, right? Um, and look how the church grows. I mean, in 1949, there were 12, 1.2 million Members, I mean, excuse me, Christians in China. 
In China today, it's said that there are 81 million Christians. Do you know how many Christians have died in between there? Like, there's a few million have died in between. So it's like, how do you kill that many and then gain 80 more million? Right? Um, in Africa, um, skyrocketing. Um, fastest growing church in the Muslim world is in Sudan. Horrible place to be a Christian, right? North Vietnam, there were no evangelical Christians in 1989. By the year 2000, there were 175,000. Brutal oppression. And you say that, well, persecution comes, and as um, the old, old church fathers said, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, Right? But oftentimes it's the opposite. Oftentimes persecution, you will see the church grow during persecution, but oftentimes the church is persecuted because it's growing. And oftentimes um, there are places where the church has disappeared because of pers- persecution. Um, I, I read a, a, a pastor in Iraq where the church, where disciples are being made, um, who, who said this, um, now, now, you can imagine in Iraq, the churches are very, very small and persecuted. This one pastor said, last year alone, 93 members of my congregation were killed. The threat is particularly great for those who convert. Listen to this. I baptized 13 adults secretly last year. 11 of them were dead within the week. That's, there's nothing encouraging about that at all. Like, if, if you're in that church, that's horrible, right? Um, like, that makes, I'm reading that, think, rethinking everything. Like, what in the world does it mean to be the church, right? Um, and, and, and here, you know, if you have more of a consumer-based approach where you can just kind of go to any church you want to on any given Sunday... It's very easy to look at that and just kind of make kind of a romantic tale out of it. Um, Because we see people coming out of that who are happy and full of faith, but there are people in those situations who lose their faith, who don't want to go on anymore. Um, And many Christians carry scars and pain for the rest of their life. Their churches are wiped out. They don't see their church grow. And they suffer the rest of their lives for it. So, um, and then we say things like, well, it's hard to be a Christian here because things are so good. And that's absolutely true, but isn't that a very different reason? <laughs> like, we've got it so good here, it's hard to be a Christian. Um, so much wealth, so much material goods. Um, and that's, that's absolutely true. When the Israelites came into the promised land, it became hard for them to, to walk in faith because they had everything they needed. But I would have a very hard time looking at someone, a pastor, who baptized 13 and 11 were killed and said, yeah, it's hard here too because we've got it so good. <laughs> it's, yeah, so... Um, that just doesn't sound right. And so 
that, and I think that's true in the Bible too. And, and I remember when I was in Bible college, there was a, a, a guy who was in seminary and he was from an Asian, Asian country where it was hard for him to be a Christian. And he had come to the States. And I remember um, sitting at a meal and I remember him saying, yeah, when I'm sitting in class, I find myself removing the American part of the lessons. And I just remember being so struck by that. Like, in America, you look everything through an American grid. And that's, that's obviously true no matter where you live, right? right. We have cultural glasses on, and we just look at the Bible that way. But, but the more you look, like at the Psalms and at the New Testament, you realize how often, I was just looking at this this week, the majority of times that the New Testament talks about suffering, the majority of times the New Testament talks about suffering, it's talking about suffering for the sake of righteousness. Um, even the story when Jesus and Paul talk about the story of Cain and Abel, they describe it as a righteous man suffering at the hand of an evil person. Right? So when we read books on suffering, half of the book is devoted to the suffering that comes from sin and the suffering that comes from living in a fallen world, which are very true. Natural disasters happen, disease happens. We just live on a fallen planet and we suffer because of it. And we need to figure that out. Um, and we need to learn to trust God through that. And I'm not belittling that. I'm not downplaying that. That is difficult, difficult, difficult. But the majority of the time in the New Testament when it's talking about suffering, it's talking about suffering for the sake of righteousness. And, and there were th- just three quick instances that, that jump out at me, like Acts chapter 8, when, when Stephen is killed for his faith, right? Stephen is martyred, and, um, you know, Paul's there holding his, the, the coats, and, um, you know, he looks up, and his face is like an angel, and they stone him. And it says this persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. And this is all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged both men and women and put them to prison. And then those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, it's very, very easy to read that passage and go, persecution broke out, the people were scattered, but good news, they preached the gospel everywhere. So God and his sovereign purposes used this persecution of Christians to spread the gospel. And amen, hallelujah, he did. But guess what? There were people left behind who had to bury Stephen, and there were people left behind who went, what happened to our church? Right? <laughs> it's very easy to skip the middle part of the story that Stephen had a family and Stephen had friends and they're just left mourning. It says they mourned deeply for him. Um, it's just very easy to read kind of a romantic version of that story. Um, Fast forward, we just finished Revelation, and I realized there was something that, I, that we talked about in that, but I realized I didn't emphasize it enough. We talked about all the martyrs in Revelation, all the people who die for their faith in Revelation. And we talked about how in the end, um, 
evil loses and good wins. Um, it's good. It's very good. So I heard the bells on Christmas Day. He's right. It ends with peace on earth. The Prince of Peace comes. And we realize that the evil people who, who, who killed the martyrs, they get justice. But the interesting emphasis in Revelation is that there's victory for the people who were killed. Right? The people who took up their cross to the point of death, Jesus says, yes, I died too, and I came out the other side. Remember, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. You chose death, you get victory. Right? So, Christianity at its root is a man who died on a cross who says, take up your cross. And that's how Christianity keeps going. So it's just very easy, I find, to to kind of read Scripture with American eyes and kind of miss, to, to praise God that he's sovereign over persecution, to praise God for the good that comes out of it. But in my comfort to miss the hard parts. And I was really struck this week. I mean, one of my favorite passages, my favorite chapter in the Bible is Romans 8. It's possibly the best chapter in the Bible. We could arm wrestle over it. But um, at the end of Romans 8, there's this text. Um, It says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus died more than that who was raised alive. Is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So no matter how condemned you feel, no matter what this world says about condemning you, no matter even how the law condemns you, Jesus Christ has died. We are not condemned before God, and there is no condemnation. But then listen to this. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, you may have memorized this list. You may have read this list. You may have sang this list. I don't know what you did with this list, but you've read this list. And I just read this list again this week, thinking about IDOP here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? No. Hardship? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Or sword? Like most of the list, I'm sitting here thinking about this. Don't you hate it when your neighbors find out you're a Christian and they burn your house down while you're in the shower and you have to stand there naked and watch your house burn down? Don't you hate it when that happens? I hate that. I just despise that. But here it is. It's in the list. Nakedness. Danger. Like, I just, I just, I'm so used to reading the list that I just think nothing's going to separate me from Christ when I realize... Oh, there's a lot in this list that I just don't face. Like, I had two gospel conversations this week, okay? Um, One was in my driveway, completely unexpected. And one was at Starbucks. And 
and both of these were people, maybe one of them I've shared the gospel with before. One of them I had not. Okay. One out of the blue walked back in the house and went, where did that come from? Right in my driveway. Um, and the other one just, we were talking about movies and books. And so it was a perfect opportunity to just talk about how movies are, and stories are, you know, you set it up, you mess it up, you fix it up, you wrap it up, right? That's every movie you ever watched. You know, that's the story of history. God made the world. He created and Adam and Eve fell. They fell into sin, and death and sin came into the world. Jesus Christ died for that. He rose again, and one day he's going to come and restore everything. There you go, 10 seconds, right? And, and hopefully that will be a greater conversation than that. But in both situations, all I got was a funny look. I think one of them raised their eyebrow a little. Nobody whipped out a sword. <laughs> Nobody hit me. Nothing. I just got a little, hmm. That hurt. Right? It's, just, it's just, and I don't downplay that. I'm not saying, but I'm just, it's just interesting that I read the Bible and I, I read it like a comfortable dude who just gets, hmm, when he shares the gospel when people, other people die. Um, and he says, again, naked, nakedness, dangerous sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. Like any time in the day, I could just die for this. I'm just getting a refill on my coffee, right? Um, so let's, let's talk about persecution on this planet. Um, they have a list that comes out every year. I should have put this on the board. I forgot. But um, every year, year after year after year after year, um, North Korea, top of the list. Worst place to be a Christian. Um, North Korea is number two this year. How about that? North Korea, unseated. I hope they don't find out in North Korea. Go, what? We're not number one anymore? Yeah. Um, Afghanistan, number one now. Most difficult place to be a Christian. Um, And there are Christians going back. (laughs) Christians going back. Um, Number three, Somalia. You, You go back down this list. Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Nigeria. Pakistan, Iran, India, Saudi Arabia, you can go down. Um, Mali makes it uh, at 24. Um, lots of the, the usual suspects, Iraq, China, uh, Qatar, Vietnam, Egypt, Uzbekistan. Um, you know what's hard is that this is, they say, 200 million people. 200 million people, over 60 nations, face violent persecution or detention because of their identity as Christians. Christians are, without a doubt, the number one group on planet Earth persecuted simply because of their identity as Christians. Um, but it's also difficult, very, very difficult, to come up with a number. Like, what if you live way, way out in nowhere in Africa and you can't just, like, pick up your email, get an internet connection? To whom it may concern, I was beaten for my faith today. Thank you very much. Like, who are you trying to tell? Maybe you won't tell. Maybe you're afraid to tell. Maybe it'll be a year before anybody finds out. Maybe you'll just be killed and nobody will ever know about it. Right? You see how hard this is. Um, If it's not for the stories that get out, then how do you know? But we know it's happening. We know it's happening. We know it's happening by the millions. And so I want to get specific now. I want to get down to something very specific. We have... A video um, 
from Nigeria. Um, so we're going to lower. I'm going to get out of the way. And we're going to... My name is Rebecca. I live in the north of Nigeria. One evening I was out with my daughter and on our way home we saw smoke rising above our village. We were under attack. There was nothing we could do to defend ourselves. My husband and I were married in that village. My wedding day, it was the happiest day of my life. Some members of our church gave us a wedding gift. It was a Bible. We read it together every day. And when our children were old enough, we read it to them and their friends. Let the little children come to me. Let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them. And do not forbid them. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Church of Matthew chapter 19. Verse 14. On the day our village burnt to the ground, my husband and my son were killed in the attack. I was devastated. I mourned for many months. Some of us were able to return to our village to reclaim anything that was left. of Genesis and Revelation were burnt, but the rest was mostly intact. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. O 
all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a wild flower. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I shall return there. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is a husband to all widows. Now I look to him for every need. This is what I am still holding on to. Isn't it amazing that go down through history, how many governments were threatened by a book? You remember when Margaret Nicole came and told us about living in communist Bulgaria and how the communist uh, soldiers and police would come to their homes and take their Bibles and how um, the one elderly lady in their church sat on her Bible and they didn't take it. And when she went to church the next Sunday, she tore a page out and gave a page to everybody in church. And... Um, so that's what we pray for. We're Bible's our middle name. So um, we, will, we will pray very, very specifically uh, for God to continue to send Bibles and Bible translators out into the world. We'll flip through some of these slides and read them together and um, pray through them together. You just want to flip through those as Christians living. Um, like she said, they cherish their Bibles. Sorry, I didn't bring my flipper. <laughs> We're going to pray that every Christian living in hostile areas and restricted nations will receive their very own copy of the Bible. So we'll pray that. Um, persecutors around the world are threatened by God's word and seek to destroy or remove Bibles in order to discourage the witness of Christians. So we will pray that Christians will be wise as serpents, innocent as doves, as they smuggle and distribute Bibles. Yes. And we will pray that persecutors who seize Bibles will read them and place their trust in Christ. Placing a Bible in the hand of every believer living in the world's most dangerous and difficult frontier fields will encourage them to be bold witnesses for Christ. 
Let's pray together, would you? Lord, um, it all keeps coming back to Jesus, who's revealed himself walking this earth, and who's given us a book, a dangerous book, (laughs) a dangerous book, a book that is threatening, a book that hostile governments want to rid their nations of, book that many people want to see destroyed, and we're going to pray, God, that you would see to it that more and more and more of these books are produced, that more and more of these books are sent into the world, God. Lord, there are still more than a thousand languages on this planet that do not have even a verse in their language, and so, God, we pray that you would raise up people who will go to the ends of the earth, to the most difficult places, to translate the Bible into these remaining languages, God, um, that people can hear and know that God knows their language and know Jesus. Lord, send your word into the darkest recesses of this planet. Cover this earth with your glory, your truth. God, for our brothers and sisters all over the world who are suffering persecution, give them perseverance, give them peace, give them hope. God, Lord, give them hope that will help them to persevere, God. Lord, help us to be bold proclaimers, courageous proclaimers of the good news here where we are in this place. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.